This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Cho. The Yosemite by John Muir. Chapter 6, Part B. The Yellow or Silver Pine. The silver pine, Pinus ponderosa, or yellow pine, as it is commonly called, ranks second among the pines of the Sierra as a lumber tree, and almost rivals the sugar pine in stature and nobleness of port. Because of its superior powers of enduring variations of climate and soil, it has a more extensive range than any other conifer growing on the Sierra. On the western slope, it is first met at an elevation of about 2,000 feet, and extends nearly to the upper limit of the timberline. Thence, crossing the range by the lowest passes, it descends to the eastern base and pushes out for a considerable distance into the hot, volcanic plains, growing bravely upon well-watered moraines, gravelly lake basins, climbing old volcanoes, and dropping ripe cones among ashes and cinders. The average size of full-grown trees on the western slope where it is associated with a sugar pine is a little less than 200 feet in height and from 5 to 6 feet in diameter, though specimens considerably larger may easily be found. Where there is plenty of free sunshine and other conditions are favorable, it presents a striking contrast in form to the sugar pine, being a symmetrical spire formed of a straight round trunk clad with innumerable branches that are divided over and over again. Unlike the Yosemite form, about one half of the trunk is commonly branchless, but where it grows at all, close three-fourths or more is naked, presenting then a more slender and elegant shaft than any other tree in the woods. The bark is mostly arranged in massive plates, some of them measuring four or five feet in length by eighteen inches in width, with a thickness of three or four inches, forming a quite marked and distinguishing feature. The needles are of a fine, warm, yellow-green color, six to eight inches long, firm and elastic, and crowded in handsome, radiant tassels on the upturning ends of the branches. The cones are about three or four inches long and two and a half wide, growing in close, sessile clusters among the leaves. The species attains its noblest form in filled-up lake basins, especially in those of the older Yosemites, and as we have seen, so prominent a part does it form of their groves that it may well be called the Yosemite pine. The Jeffrey variety attains its finest development in the northern portion of the range, in the wide basins of the McLeod and Pitt rivers, where it forms magnificent forests scarcely invaded by any other tree. It differs from the ordinary form in size, being only about half as tall, in its redder and more closely furrowed bark grayish-green foliage, less divided branches, and much larger cones. But intermediate forms come in which make a clear separation impossible, although some botanists regard it as a distinct species. It is this variety of ponderosa that climbs storm-swept ridges alone and wanders out among the volcanoes of the Great Basin. Whether exposed to extremes of heat or cold, it is dwarfed like many other trees and becomes all knots and angles, wholly unlike the majestic forms we have been sketching. 
Old specimens bearing cones about as big as pineapples may sometimes be found clinging to rifted rocks at an elevation of 7,000 or 8,000 feet, whose highest branches scarce reach above one's shoulders. I have often feasted on the beauty of these noble trees when they were towering in all their winter grandeur, laden with snow, one mass of bloom. In summer, too, when the brown staminate clusters hang thick among the shimmering needles, and the big purple burrs are ripening in the mellow light. But it is during cloudless windstorms that these colossal pines are most impressively beautiful. Then they bow like willows, their leaves streaming forward all in one direction, and when the sun shines upon them at the required angle, entire groves glow as if every leaf were burnished silver. The fall of tropic light on the crown of a palm is a truly glorious spectacle, the fervid sun-flood breaking upon the glossy leaves in long lance-rays, like mountain water among boulders at the foot of an enthusiastic cataract. But to me, there is something more impressive in the fall of light upon these noble, silver pine pillars. It is beaten to the finest dust and shed off in myriads of minute sparkles that seem to radiate from the very heart of the tree as if like rain falling upon fertile soil, it had been absorbed to reappear in flowers of light. This species also gives forth the finest wind music. After listening to it in all kinds of winds, night and day, season after season, I think I could approximate to my position on the mountain by this pine music alone. If you would, catch the tone of separate needles climb a tree in breezy weather. Every needle is carefully tempered and gives forth no uncertain sound, each standing out with no interference excepting during head gales. Then you may detect the click of one needle upon another, readily distinguishable from the free wind-like hum. When a sugar pine and one of these species equal in size are observed together, the latter is seen to be more simple in manners, more lively and graceful, and its beauty is of a kind more easily appreciated. On the other hand, it is less dignified and original in demeanor. The yellow pine seems ever eager to shoot aloft higher and higher. Even while it is drowsing in autumn sun gold, you may still detect a skyward aspiration, but the sugar pine seems too unconsciously noble and too complete in every way to leave room for even a heavenward care. The Douglas Spruce The Douglas Spruce, Pseudosuga douglasii, is one of the largest and longest lived of the giants that flourish throughout the main pine belt, often attaining a height of nearly 200 feet and a diameter of 6 or 7 feet. Where the growth is not too close, the stout, spreading branches, covering more than half of the trunk, are hung with innumerable slender, drooping sprays, handsomely feathered with the short leaves which radiate at right angles all around them. This vigorous tree is ever beautiful, welcoming the mountain winds and the snow, as well as the mellow summer light, and it maintains its youthful freshness undiminished from century to century through a thousand storms. It makes its finest appearance during the months of June and July, when the brown buds at the ends of the sprays swell and open, revealing the young leaves, which at first are bright yellow, making the tree appear as if covered with gay blossoms, while the pendulous bracted cones, three or four inches long with their shell-like scales, are a constant adornment. 
The young trees usually are assembled in family groups, each sapling exquisitely symmetrical. The primary branches are whorled regularly around the axis, generally in fives, while each is draped with long, feathery sprays that descend in lines as free and as finely drawn as those of falling water. In Oregon and Washington, it forms immense forests, growing tall and mast-like to a height of 300 feet, and is greatly prized as a lumber tree. Here, it is scattered among other trees, or forms small groves, seldom ascending higher than 5,500 feet, and never making what would be called a forest. It is not particular in its choice of soil, wet or dry, smooth or rocky, it makes out to live well on them all. Two of the largest specimens, as we have seen, are in Yosemite. One of these, more than eight feet in diameter, is growing on a moraine, the other nearly as large on angular blocks of granite. No other tree in the Sierra seems so much at home on earthquake taluses, and many of these huge boulder slopes are almost exclusively occupied by it. The Incense Cedar Incense cedar, Libocedrus decurrens, already noticed among the Yosemite trees, is quite generally distributed throughout the pine belt without exclusively occupying any considerable area, or even making extensive groves. On the warmer mountain slopes, it ascends to about 5,000 feet, and reaches the climate most congenial to it at a height of about 4,000 feet, growing vigorously at this elevation in all kinds of soil, and, in particular, it is capable of enduring more moisture about its roots than any of its companions excepting only the sequoia. Casting your eye over the general forest from some ridge top, you can identify it by the color alone of its spiry summits, a warm yellow green. In its youth, up to the age of 70 or 80 years, none of its companions forms so strictly tapered a cone from top to bottom. As it becomes older, it oftentimes grows strikingly irregular and picturesque. Large branches push out at right angles to the trunk, forming stubborn elbows and shoot up parallel with the axis. Very old trees are usually dead at the top. The flat, fragrant plumes are exceedingly beautiful. No waving fern frond is finer in form and texture. In its prime, the whole tree is thatched with them. But if you would see the Libocedrus in all its glory, you must go to the woods in midwinter when it is laden with myriads of yellow flowers about the size of wheat grains, forming a noble illustration of nature's immortal virility and vigor. The mature cones, about three-fourths of an inch long, borne on the ends of the plumy branchlets, serve to enrich still more the surpassing beauty of this winter-blooming tree goldenrod. The Silver Firs we come now to the most regularly planted and most clearly defined of the main forest belts, composed almost exclusively of two silver firs, Abies concolor and Abies magnifica, extending with but little interruption 450 miles at an elevation of from 5,000 to 9,000 feet above the sea. In its youth, Abies concolor is a charming symmetrical tree with its flat plumy branches arranged in regular whorls around the whitish-gray axis which terminates in a stout, hopeful shoot, pointing straight to the zenith like an admonishing finger. The leaves are arranged in two horizontal rows along branchlets that commonly are less than eight years old, forming handsome plumes, pinnated like the fronds of ferns. 
The cones are grayish green when ripe, cylindrical, from three to four inches long, and one and a half to two inches wide, and stand upright on the upper horizontal branches. Full-grown trees in favorable situations are usually about 200 feet high and five or six feet in diameter. As old age creeps on, the rough bark becomes rougher and grayer, the branches lose their exact regularity of form, many that are snow-bent are broken off, and the axis often becomes double or otherwise irregular from accidents to the terminal bud or shoot. Nevertheless, throughout all the vicissitudes of its three or four centuries of life, come what may, the noble grandeur of this species, however obscured, is never lost. The magnificent silver fir, or California red fir, Abies magnifica, is the most symmetrical of all the Sierra giants, far surpassing its companion species in this respect, and easily distinguished from it by the purplish-red bark, which is also more closely furrowed than that of the white, and by its larger cones, its more regularly whorled and fronded branches, and its shorter leaves, which grow all around the branches and point upward instead of being arranged in two horizontal rows. The branches are mostly whorled in fives, and stand out from the straight red-purple bowl in level, or in old trees and drooping collars, every branch regularly pinnated like fern fronds, making broad plumes, singularly rich and sumptuous-looking. The flowers are in their prime about the middle of June, the male red, growing on the underside of the branches in crowded profusion, giving a very rich color to all the trees, the female greenish-yellow, tinged with pink, standing erect on the upper side of the topmost branches, while the tufts of young leaves, about as brightly colored as those of the Douglas spruce, make another grand show. The cones mature in a single season from the flowers. When mature, they are about six to eight inches long, three or four in diameter, covered with a fine gray down and streaked and beaded with transparent balsam, very rich and precious looking, and stand erect like casks on the topmost branches. The inside of the cone is, if possible, still more beautiful. The scales and bracts are tinged with red and the seed wings are purple with bright iridescence. Both of the silver firs live between two and three centuries when the conditions about them are at all favorable. Some venerable patriarch may be seen heavily storm-marked, towering in severe majesty above the rising generation, with a protecting grove of hopeful saplings pressing close around his feet, each dressed with such loving care that not a leaf seems wanting. Other groups are made up of trees near the prime of life, nicely arranged as if nature had culled them with discrimination from all the rest of the woods. It is from this tree, called red fir by the lumbermen, that mountaineers cut boughs to sleep on when they are so fortunate as to be within its limit. Two or three rows of the sumptuous plushy fronded branches overlapping along the middle, and a crescent of smaller plumes mixed to one's taste with ferns and flowers for a pillow, form the very best bed imaginable. The essence of the pressed leaves seems to fill every pore of one's body. Falling water makes a soothing hush, while the spaces between the grand spires afford noble openings through which to gaze dreamily into the starry sky. 
The fir woods are fine sauntering grounds at almost any time of the year, but finest in autumn, when the noble trees are hushed in the hazy light and drip with balsam, and the flying, whirling seeds, escaping from the ripe cones, model the air like flocks of butterflies. Even in the richest part of these unrivaled forests, where so many noble trees challenge admiration, we linger fondly among the colossal firs and extol their beauty again and again, as if no other tree in the world could henceforth claim our love. It is in these woods the great granite domes arise that are so striking and characteristic a feature of the Sierra. Here, too, we find the best of the garden meadows full of lilies. A dry spot a little way back from the margin of a silver fir lily garden makes a glorious campground, especially where the slope is toward the east with a view of the distant peaks along the summit of the range. The tall lilies are brought forward most impressively like visitors by the light of your campfire, and the nearest of the trees with their whorled branches tower above you like larger lilies, and the sky seen through the garden opening seems one vast meadow of white lily stars. End of chapter 6, part B.